Hello, I'm Debbie Krennic, publisher of Newsday, and thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been six months since the coronavirus changed life as we know it. Masks are a part of our everyday norm, as are words like pandemic, social distancing, and even quarantine. But now, as summer turns into fall and schools begin to start up again, many are asking what comes next for this virus. How close are we to a possible vaccine? And what about a potential second wave? Tonight, Newsday Associate Editor Joy Brown will lead a panel of Long Island doctors as they discuss those topics and answer your health-related questions. Joining Joy this evening are Dr. Nicholas Hernandez, a family medicine attending hospitalist at Northwell Health Plainview Hospital, Dr. Lawrence Ferber, Director of Behavioral Health Central Intake Services for Catholic Health Services, Dr. Uzma Syed, an infectious disease doctor and chair of the COVID-19 task force at Good Samaritan, Good Samaritan Hospital and Medical Center, and Dr. Uh, Susan Donnellan, medical director of he healthcare epidemiology at Stony Brook Medicine. Welcome back to many of you, and to all, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge uh, with us tonight. I'm gonna turn things over to Joy so we can get the conversation started right away. Over to you, Joy. Thank you, Debbie. It's been a few weeks uh, since we've had a health um, program here. I'd, I'd like to say that we missed you and we're happy to have you with us this evening. And we have some good people who are here to answer your questions. A lot has changed since the last time we've had um, one of these health programs. I'm gonna start with you, Dr. Hernandez. You have had COVID. There's a lot of discussion now about people who are keeping symptoms after COVID. First, how are you doing? And what do we know about people who've had COVID and who are still having symptoms? Well, good evening, Joy, um, and thank you guys for inviting me. Um, I'm feeling well, thank God. Um, every now and then, uh, like Dr. Ferber was saying before, I'm not sure if it's because we're working a lot um, or just get tired every now and then, but I know there are a lot of sequela from COVID that we're still trying to understand. Um, but thank goodness, uh, you know, I'm pretty much uh, at my baseline and, um, you know, things are, are doing good. Uh, so far, so good, not come with. Good. A lot of our readers are worried actually about you all almost as much as they're worried about themselves. Dr. Ferber, um, how are you all doing? How are physicians doing? What do you What do you see within your own profession? You guys have been running and gunning for, for, for months now. That's a great question, Joy. Um, I can only tell you again from uh, anecdotal uh, things from what I see. Um, I'm actually, I offer emotional health. You know, one of the things I see is a lot of the staff members for some reason don't want to come forward. They want to do it anonymously. Um, you know, I get that there's a whole stigma with mental health. We all know that. Um, so that makes sense to me. I I just have a, a feeling that we're going to see a huge amount of post-traumatic stress um, now and moving forward, we're going to see a lot more of it just because of what we all have been through and what we, what we witnessed for the first three months um, with you know, all the sickness and the deaths and um, things of that nature. Um, again, I don't want to be a downer. There's been a lot of uh, great things going on, and, uh, but from that question, yeah, I would say People definitely on the front lines are definitely experiencing it, uh, but are getting through it. They're warriors, and um, you know, there's one of your uh, warriors right there, Doctor. You know, Hernandez has the COVID. He's right there. He's working. You know, that's the way we do it. So, but we're getting through it. We're all in it together. One of the things that's been happening here is schools beginning to start up. Um, uh, Dr. Syed, what are you hearing from people, and what concerns do, do are they bringing about school? Um, as their kids go back to school. I tell you, we have a question from Edna. Edna says she plans to send her son to school a couple of days a week. She's worried about what should I do when my son gets home? Do I get him in a shower? Do I throw his clothes in the washing machine? Do I keep his shoes outside? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks so much, Joy. So, you know, we've come a long way um, in New York and in Long Island, um, especially, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic um, and collectively because of all of our efforts. 
we've gotten the transmission in the community really low, um, but we have a lot of work to do to keep it, you know, at this level, especially with, uh, you know, upcoming fall season and with schools reopening. And, you know, we've slowly and carefully been sort of adjusting back to life in phases um, and doing it very carefully so that, you know, not to disrupt and, and you know, wake this sleeping giant, essentially this, you know, coronavirus that is amongst us. Um, but the real challenge is going to be as we now transition between seasons, um, you know, and really move indoors. So the things that we know that are tried and true and tested measures that work um, against this virus, all the infection prevention measures that we have in place uh, that have been proven to work really need to continue. Um, people need to be very good about masking, about um, keeping their distance and, you know, really continuing to practice the hand hygiene. And the same would then apply to the children. So parents really have to continue to have these important conversations with the children, especially as schools are beginning. And this is very new, um, you know, routine for most children. So it's the, the new normal, essentially, as you mentioned uh, before. And, you know, it can have impact, you know, psychologically as well for children. So we, we want children to thrive, you know, I mean, we know how important schools are. We know how important, uh, you know, it is for community, for children alike. But, you know, going into this, um, we have to do the best that we can as a community, uh, meaning parents, you know, um, children and, you know, um, uh, health providers to make sure that we have the most safe outcome for everybody. So the school districts that are operating, you know, whether they're going, you know, um, virtually part-time and part-time in person, uh, whatever models that they have in place, you know, as long as they're following the guidance um, from the Department of Health, CDC, um, you know, they have, uh, you know, precautions that are set in place, um, but it's up to the parents to, you know, continue to work together with the administration, with the districts and, you know, continue the work that's necessary at home. You have to teach your children really, you know, once you come home, they do need to wash their hands. Um, you know, they are gonna be having the precautions at the school, but I think it's important to always, you know, uh, take extra measures. And the most important thing really that I think parents really need to be aware of is if, the children are not feeling well, they need to make sure that they keep their children home because, you know, one uh, action affects, you know, has a series of, you know, reactions and affects everybody. So essentially we are all in this together. So it's really important that people are cognizant of that and are adhering to that. So better, better be safe than sorry. So he should clean up and clean the clothes and the whole kit and caboodle there. Yeah, so I mean, the transmission, you know, has been essentially proven to be mostly respiratory um, uh, droplets and, you know, the fomites that we talk about, you know, the contamination on surfaces and clothes and things like that, you know, um, the surfaces obviously are being cleaned um, rigorously, you know, most school districts are going to have these precautions in place. Uh, but as far as clothing goes, you know, so if somebody theoretically coughs or sneezes, you know, and those droplets are, um, you know, landing on your clothing and then, you know, that person is then touching that surface and then touching their face and eyes, then, you know, there is risk of transmission. But otherwise, you know, with all the precautions in place with the masks and, you know, um, and the distancing and everything like that, certain schools even have dividers and, and all these different things that it really kind of, all these um, efforts are put into place to really mitigate any, any further risk. So, you know, the best practices, you know, most most children would come home and wash their hands, you know, especially, you know, during flu season and things like that. We want to make sure that, you know, it doesn't hurt to, you know, have the clothing change, especially based on who's in your household, wash the hands and really just promote a healthy environment. Uh, Dr. Donald, I'm going to come to you for just a second because we're getting a lot of questions about a second wave. But first, um, we talked to a couple of Long Islanders who are nervous. Uh, one of them is Hillary Topper of Merrick. And she's worried about COVID-19 spreading across Long Island. Let's take a look at this clip. It gets me nervous. Look at Oneonta. They had 100 people, right? 100 kids come down with COVID. Those kids are coming back to Long Island. And then what? You know, then it's just going to spur up again. I just think that whatever somebody brings home could go to, you know, it could go to the whole family. And then if the mother goes shopping or what have you, it just spreads like. Dr. Donlin, second wave, and again, a lot of questions on this. What is the second wave and where is it gonna come from? Especially since the current rate of um, testing uh, positives on Long Island for 26 days straight has been less than 1%. 
I think I think we've done <clears throat> tremendous work, uh, as Dr. Syed said, in in the social distancing and the mask use and and staying home when not not well. Um, second wave or the second spike, if one considers we might still be in the in the first wave, is going to come together if it happens. Um, when people start to move indoors, when people become lax about the things that they um, need, know that they need to do, the things that we did to, to keep us um, on the downslide and, and in, in a, a better place than we were a few months ago. Um, we really have to understand that we have the, the ability and the power to influence what comes next. Um, with, if we continue to keep doing the things that we're supposed to be doing, and we're consistent with them, then we have the ability to mitigate future impact of not only COVID, but influenza and the other respiratory viruses. The things that we do to control COVID-19 are the things that are also going to be useful for controlling influenza and other respiratory viruses. So we've been practiced at this. We just can't get complacent and we have to be smart. Uh, Dr. Hernandez, Ronnie wants to know, can you get COVID twice? And we've heard reports that people getting different strains. And he also wants to know, can you get flu and COVID? I assume at the same time. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, so uh, it's possible. It's uh, definitely uh, a possibility. And uh, it really depends on your immune system and your state, but as well as, you know, we still don't really know well about the antibodies, what you need to be protected versus how much and you know how little. Um, so in reality, yes, uh, if you had a mild case, you could potentially get it again. Um, but how that manifests in your body, we're still trying to figure that out. Um, we've had a couple of cases at our own hospital um, where they've come back either sicker or um, not well, but they eventually turn around, do better uh, with some of the newer treatments we have. Um, whether those treatments are working or not, or it's just time, um, in due time will tell. The, the nice reassuring thing about the flu is that we have the ability to test it and we have the ability to test it very quickly. So we'll know whether or not to know whether or not they have flu A or B. Um, we have the flu vaccine as well, um, which uh, helps with respect to you know protection and immunity. So, um, and I'm sure Dr. Um, D and Dr. Saeed can uh, comment more on that as well. Well, we're going to talk about vaccines because we're being inundated with questions about vaccines. Um, um, but before we get there, I wanted to, to get to, to another question. Um, this one is coming from Carol. Carol wants to know, she's worried about her daughter who's in college. She says, if her college closes and her daughter gets sent back, uh, she says her parents are in the house. What does she do with her daughter if her daughter gets sent back? Who wants to take that one? I'll open it up. Well, I have kids in college, so maybe I'll take that one. <clears throat> um, you know, if you have people at risk in the family and you have someone that comes back to live um, within the household and you think that perhaps uh, they may be, um, have been exposed either because as college students go, um, we know from colleges throughout the U.S. that they're, it's a time of celebration, it's a time of, of new beginnings, and so they may not be as stringent perhaps as they were at home. Um, I would say that you have the uh, ability to have your daughter relatively isolate from um, the people at risk in the family, uh, and if not, you know, use um, masking when around them. Um, for at least the, the, the two weeks after they return home. If that's a possibility, then that's something that's worth um, trying to, to pursue because um, students may not be symptomatic um, and still may be able to transmit it to people at risk. And so um, if, that's a, if that's something that they can, can do, I think that they should plan on that now in the event that, um, that that turns out to be the problem, you know, with whatever campus that they're, that they're attending at the moment. Dr. Ferber, I'm gonna follow that up with a question from Tim. Tim says, <laughs> I'm a senior and I've got underlying conditions. Why can't I go to a restaurant? I'm going crazy. Um, I think his question, he's saying, he, well, I get from this that he feels that because of his underlying question, underlying conditions, 
he has not been able to have as much freedom as other people. What, what, what would you say to Tim? You know, I would say that, you know, we all know that underlying conditions put us at greater risk, uh, more or less. Um, again, you know, psychologically speaking, we all have to live what we call a quality of life, you know, and if this is really impinging on him, uh, I'd say, Tim, if you know, I would say try not to uh, expose yourself as much as possible. Like the good doctors were saying, be safe. Um, I would try to stay away from uh, a lot of people gathering, you know, do everything safe, wash your hands, wear a mask. Um, I, I would not at this point expose myself just because of the underlying conditions. There are things that we can do and he can do, Tim, you can do to mitigate your um your, you know, your uh, feelings of going crazy, like you say, or freaking out. Um, and that is coping with stress, you know, do the, what we know to do, which is to get, you know, regular sleep, um, make sure you're not drinking more, taking substances more, um, concentrate on things you like to do. Um, but just the daily stuff, even meditating and um, just do things that we know that are going to co help you cope with, with the stress of, of, of how you're feeling. Um, and like everybody was saying, it has lessened in New York. So things are looking up um, and you're not alone. You know, you know, there's so many other people that are feeling this way. We are getting so many questions on vaccines that before we get to them, uh, let's go um, take a look at, 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 another, at another clip. Uh, we asked Long Islanders about vaccinating against COVID-19. Well, let's hear what they had to say. Let's go to this clip. I would not be the first in line. Put me way towards the back. I would get one if it was available. Yeah, why not? Sure. I, I'm, at, I'm at that age where I want to protect myself. I would definitely take it at some point. I'm just not sure if I would go be number one. Sure, if it met all the uh, qualifications and criteria, most definitely. Not initially. No, I would not. I would wait and see what kind of response there is to the vaccine before I would um, take it. Dr. Saeed, let's get to William. William says, I heard on the news tonight that a vaccine may be ready by November 1st. Does this seem possible? And if so, will it be safe to take? Thanks so much for that, William. That's a great question. Um, so, you know, from a scientific perspective, uh, vaccine development follows a very specific um, series and sequence of events. You know, there are many phases. Uh, right now, we have over 13 vaccines that are in clinical trials, over 100 that are, you know, being produced worldwide, globally. Um, and things are moving quicker than they normally do, but that's also because we have advantages um, scientifically from, you know, previous data and uh, research that's been done with SARS and MERS um, and development towards the vaccine. That being said, though, you know, the way, the only way to know the safety and efficacy of a vaccine is to really allow it to naturally go through all of the phases of the clinical trials. That's really the only way that you can actually prove scientifically that this vaccine, uh, this new vaccine that is available has um, is effective and is in fact safe. Um, so there are several vaccine candidates right now that are, you know, entering, that have entered and are going to be entering phase three clinical trials. But ideally, you really would want these um, trials to be completed um, for us to know, because this last phase of the clinical trials is really where it studies large group of uh, population of people, you know, tens of thousands of people. So you're looking at a very diverse group of people and you want to see, you know, over time, you know, how these people are reacting and behaving to the vaccines, you know, and make sure that there is definitely proven benefit where people are not getting sick uh, with coronavirus and there's also uh, safety that's been proven. Um, so we don't want to really go into anything prematurely before having the data. Um, and I think, you know, we really have to let science um, lead and follow the way the methods that we know have always worked. Uh, Dr. Donald, I'm going to follow up with a question from Ira. He says, how will we know that when the, that the vaccine is safe? Well, to, to tap onto what Dr. Syed uh, uh, spoke of, we need to follow the in order the, the steps that are required to really certify with any kind of um, 
enthusiasm or certainty that the that the, the shot is safe. Um, it's important to understand that even with the the trials um, where they are uh, very unusual uh, or unexpected side effects that occur rarely may only manifest once the the um, vaccine is on the market and has been distributed widely. Um, the other thing is that we need to know if, in fact, um, people who are exposed to the to the virus naturally after getting the vaccine, we need to make sure that we're clear about how that they they um, respond and how they um, are affected. And that still is an unknown. But I think that you know the science on, on creating the vaccine is robust. Um, it, it should be trusted. It should be allowed to go through its progressions, and then we should um, pay careful attention to the science and leave out, uh, if possible, the emotions or, or the other uh, the other things that I know have influenced so many people in terms of, of um, their discussions regarding vaccine. Well, Dr. Hernandez, I'm going to follow that one up with one from Marianne, and Marianne wants to know. She's actually asking all of you. She says. Will you take the first available vaccine? But I'll let Dr. Hernandez take that one. <laughs> I ask my I ask myself that question every day. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 like they're saying, um, we we're all scientists before we became doctors, um, and scientific method is very basic um, when it comes to proving to disproving certain. Um, results um, and it has to be uniform and you can't rush nature. Um, you know, if my health system is asking us, you know, to engage in something, I'm gonna trust that they've done all the research that they had to do. Um, otherwise, the consequences of uh, having complications from something, um, you know, who replaces me if I'm gone during a crisis? And my colleagues, you know, we have very experienced shortages within our own provider um, population. So we have to be very, very careful on how we roll it out and how we're giving, uh, you know, it to our front lines because uh, just like the teachers in the schools, you know, we have to make sure all of us are in good health so that we can, you know, continue to provide services to the people that we're, um, you know, giving care to. Um, so in reality, you know, um, I think from our CEO, um, Dr. Um, Mr. Dowling, He's basically um, kind of assured us that it's going to come out, but when it comes out, they want to make sure it's safe um, because, um, as I'm sure with all institutions, they will need to watch up for their own as well. Uh, anybody else on our panel? Would any of you sign up for the first vaccine? Okie dokie. So let's go. <laughs> let's go to Dr. Syed. Susan is worried. Susan says, are any of the new vaccines that are being considered considered live vaccines I have a compromised immune system and cannot receive live vaccines. What would you say to Susan? So, so that's a great question, Susan. And there's, like I mentioned before, there's hundred over a hundred vaccines that are in development and, you know, vaccines, um, they work in different ways. So there's live virus vaccines that have been developed in the past. There's attenuated vaccines where it's a killed vaccine. What we're looking at now is, so we've come a really a long way in vaccine development where, you know, the vaccine is being developed towards different uh, mechanisms towards the virus. So there are vaccines that are targeting the RNA. There's vaccines that are targeting the protein, that spike protein. So, you know, there's many Many different vaccines that are looking at it in different ways. So it's not necessary that you know your only option is the live um, vaccine because right now you know the vaccines that are really in, uh, in development are really um, moving along are you know the protein ones and the ones that are looking at, um, at the spike protein and the RNA. Um, so it's not necessary that you know you would be left with an option um, that is not suitable for you. People are worried about flu season out there yet. Um, so Nina wants to know about flu and COVID. She wants to know, when do you suggest getting that flu shot? At what point in time do you suggest getting that flu shot? Dr. Ferber? I mean, that's not my specialty, but I would say as soon as they offer a flu shot, I, I, would, I would take the flu shot. I mean, uh, that's just, again, that's in the literature. If, you know, if you're, I think, 50 or older, if you have any underlying conditions, I think it's good to basically have that protection. So uh, for me, that's, I would definitely say, uh, definitely take the flu vaccine for sure. 
Uh, Dr. Donlin, I think this can, this may have come up because some of the drugstores are offering the flu shot already. And there had been some news reports that that may have been too early and it may serve you better to kind of wait before you took your flu shot. Can you kind of sift through that a little bit for us? <clears throat> sure. I think it's important that whether you, you get it now or you prefer to wait a bit, that you have the vaccine uh, under your belt uh, by certainly no later than the end of October, because it takes two weeks uh, for sufficient antibodies to be uh, available to your immune system. Um, we think we tend to think about flu season as being more the December, January, February, but we you know, we test aggressively at our hospital, and there's always a few stragglers that come in early on. So I don't I don't see any particular harm unless your unless your physician who knows you recommends that you delay then it's better to get it sooner rather than later. Um, and to not miss an opportunity to get vaccinated is important. Um, let me go over to you, Dr. Syed. Um, they're gonna talk about symptoms and what is the latest information on uh, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19? What should people be looking for in terms of symptoms? <laughs> I think the symptoms uh, for the most part, uh, you know, it's what we know already, you know, the most common symptoms of fever, the respiratory symptoms that are there, cough, um, shortness of breath. Um, we talk a lot about the loss of sense of smell and taste, um, the gastrointestinal symptoms, the nausea, the vomiting, the diarrhea. Um, you know, you have some rare findings, um, you know, with this in, in children more with some skin findings and some, certainly in some adults as well. But I think what's um, really interesting is the sequela that we're seeing from the illness. So, you know, the ongoing symptoms, so people that are having a lot of neurologic symptoms, um, you know, besides, you know, the acute illness causing strokes and, and things like that, we have people that have significant uh, cognitive, uh, you know, impairment. We have people that, you know, have a lot of neurologic complaints, you know, seizures, cognitive impairment, um, and, you know, prolonged long fatigue and, you know, so things, you know, you may have somebody who was asymptomatic or symptomatic and they're sort of having these, you know, recurring ongoing fatigue and these symptoms. And these are things that we're learning as we're going through this um, pandemic, you know, and only time will tell what's there in the future, but we know for sure that there is, you know, there are people that are, they're grappling with the prolonged symptoms uh, even after recovery from the acute illness. Uh, that question came from Michael, but I'm going to go over to you, Dr. Donnan, with a question from Diane. And again, lots on vaccines. With the rush to develop a vaccination, how can researchers establish what the long-term effects can possibly be? Well, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think that there's no great answer. We know that the intent was to fast track to the extent possible uh, the production of uh, a vaccine that appears to be um, successful in its earlier uh, phases, um, I think it's going to be a tincture of time and a pinch of patience. We're not going to find out um, until we are well into the pandemic, until we're well into the aspect of vaccinating people widely. But we know that um, at some point we need to try to reach herd immunity in order to try to break the chain of transmission. And so most people accept 70% as, as a, a reasonable limit for uh, enough people developing immunity, whether it's from natural infection or from vaccination. Um, and I think that it's, it's, this, is, this is new territory. This is, this is new for us. This is the first pandemic really that has not been influenza. Um, and so, and this is the first vaccine that's been you know, um, intended to be distributed widespread for against a coronavirus. So I think, you know, there is a lot of a lot of questions, and I think that that's why we really have to trust the science um, and let it let it go through its its necessary phases and be, you know, be um, curious as to how the, the data is developed and and how robust it is. I think that's important. Dr. Perber, I'm going to follow that with a question from Mark. Mark is says I'm reading everything there is to read on vaccines, and I'm scared. Um, I don't think I want to go get one, but I'm afraid not to get one. What do you say to Mark? So that's a great, great uh, point. It's a great question. I'm, I'm going to just say uh, with that question, Mark, you're not alone. 
There's not really a lot that we all know as you're hearing. Um, you know, we're going by the science, but you know what? That's a very valid feeling. Um, uh, I, I, would, I think everybody and anybody would feel the same way. I'd say keep talking about how you feel. Um, you know, we have to take care of ourselves emotionally. And uh, one of the ways to do that is to talk about how we feel. First of all, recognize it like you're recognizing it and then talk about it. Um, again, uh, the further we go and the, and the more that comes out about it, uh, the, the more confident we'll feel. But it's natural to feel scared and um, it's OK. Um, we'll get through it. We are getting an awful lot of questions about treatments. Dr. Hernandez, I'm going to roll over your way. Um, there was some, <laughs> this question is coming from Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie says she's reading a lot about a new steroid treatment, a cheap steroid treatment. She must read the same thing I read this morning. Um, are, is there anything new in treatments? Can Is a steroid going to help if I get sick? Is there a chance that I can survive this? It, I think the, the answer to that, it's really, and Dr. Sykes probably agree with this, it's really about the timing. You know, the time of symptom onset and the time that you're presenting with the symptoms and really when you're getting it. We're seeing, you know, when that uh, inflammatory process, the cytokine storm really happens, that's when you get the sickest, and it's probably about a weekend or so. Um, but again, it really depends on your comorbidities. Are you diabetic? Um, do you uh, currently, um, are, are you currently, you know, recovering from a surgery? Um, everyone is different in their clinical profile, and I try to look at each person as an individual when I'm practicing in the hospital. So um, it, it's it's hard to say. Because, um, for example, if I give a diabetic steroid, the sugars are going to go up. So I'm going to start dealing with two issues. Um, you know, an asthmatic who may already be on steroids may need higher levels of steroids um, or a COPD. -er. So um, there are so many variants in this process. I think we're still figuring it out, but um, collaboratively, through all different specialists, um, we are trying to come up with best practices. And I think that's what's really gonna help us if God forbid there's another outbreak. Um, you know, we, we are kind of understanding uh, what sick look really looks like, kind of the time frame, and how to go about doing that. Where initially back in March, everybody who came with the COVID, most of them were getting admitted. And it was like, okay, you leave. Oh, uh, let's get you on oxygen, you go home. You know, now we have a process. Now we have protocols and there are things that we understand better. The ED has gotten a lot, lot better and screening people, really understanding symptoms and really um, advising on, okay, the, you can go home, but make sure you watch out for these symptoms. So we definitely have more information than when we started. And um, we definitely know um, how to go about uh, our day-to-day -day with respect to uh, confronting uh, COVID, whereas in the beginning, there was a lot of fear and uncertainty. We're getting a lot of questions now on herd immunity. Um, we're getting CS uh, is asking, can you talk about herd immunity? And Joy is going to kind of jump on that and said, can you give us the simplified version of what herd immunity is and why herd immunity would be a good thing? And I've got a follow up on that from uh, Janet. Dr. Syed, you want to take that one? Herd immunity. Sure. Um, so basically, you know, when you need uh, herd immunity, I'm going to try to simplify it a little bit. Um, you need a certain amount of the population to have been exposed to the virus either naturally or uh, by, you know, vaccination um, to develop herd immunity, you know, and there have been some countries um, globally that have been trying this method. The problem with herd immunity is, you know, eventually you'd like to get to that level um, of at least about 70% um, of the population, you know, having some, uh, some form of immunity, but you'd like ideally to get to that uh, with vaccination because, the alternative, um, and especially with a virus like, you know, um, SARS-CoV-2, which is essentially very lethal, unlike any other virus that we've ever come into contact with. Um, and it's just so communicable um, that, you know, you are going to have a very high risk. It's going to come at a very high cost, you know, to get to herd immunity naturally would mean that many, many, many people will have to die um, for us to get to that level. And that's just not something that's, you know, acceptable. And so, you know, we, that's why we 
are saying that very slogan that we're all in this together, why we keep wearing masks and washing our hands and you know keeping our distance and doing the right thing so that we can save more lives. Um, you talked about steroids before. I'll say that there is really no, you know, there are things that are being studied, but you know, we're still seven months into this pandemic. We don't have a magic bullet. We do not have a cure for this virus still. So we have to do the things that we know work. Um, and that's, you know, all these infection prevention measures to really save lives. Um, we had, uh, Janet is asking about herd immunity and Frank is also asking about herd immunity. Um, so vaccination, Frank says, um, well, let me let me ask you this question. This is with reports that exposure to other coronaviruses may provide some immunity to COVID-19. Could we possibly be closer to herd immunity once people begin to be vaccinated than we realize? I'm going to give you that one, Dr. Donlin. And if I read this correctly, he's actually asking two questions. One, if you're exposed to another kind of coronavirus, does that provide some sort of immunity? to the virus that causes COVID-19. Okay. And if that's true, would that in effect give us herd immunity quicker? Well, we've all been exposed to the four most common coronaviruses that are in circulation that, that are part of our seasonal, um, uh, seasonal viruses. And if that was the case, then I, I don't think we'd be seeing the number of cases. These, these do uh, differ in important ways in terms of the proteins that um, and, and the mechanisms by which they attach to cells and that type of thing. So I think the answer, unfortunately, is having had one of the other coronaviruses is probably not going to be helpful uh, at all for the fact that um, we've got this novel coronavirus um, going around. And one of the definitions of a pandemic includes something that's widespread to which no one has prior uh, exposure and so prior existing immunity. Um, so <clears throat> as, as Dr. Syed said, we, it would be ideal to try to get immunity, uh, herd immunity um, by vaccination. Unfortunately, that's that's not gonna happen entirely. Um, but the point of herd immunity is if I'm infected, but most of the people around me have immunity, then it can't, it can't continue to propagate through the, um, the population because it's going to it's going to hit a dead stop and so that's really what we're looking for we're looking for cessation of transmission by virtue ideally of a vaccination and for however long it takes or it lasts um, immunity from a natural infection as as Dr. Hernandez can probably attest we've got more coming on vaccinations but i want to jump in one uh, from Wanda Wanda says i went to my gym and it looked like everybody was wearing their masks under their nose. Is that okay? I'll give you that one, Dr. Ferber. No, that's not okay. Uh, you know, um, you know, you can, and everybody knows, uh, if whoever doesn't know, um, when we wear our masks, it needs to cover our, you know, our nose uh, and our mouth. So it's, it's really not okay. And, um, you know, again, I would limit myself from going places that have, uh, crowded. Listen, the only way we're going to continue um, mitigating this disease at this point is doing exactly what we've been doing in New York. Like uh, everybody's been saying, we've been doing good with social distancing. We've been doing really good with uh, masking. We've been doing good with washing hands. Once we let up on that, that could be, that's scary. So that's not okay. Mask over. Wanda, that's a no-go girl. There you go. <laughs> No go. With that, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow that with a question from Michael um, to Dr. Hernandez, which makes just to hammer that point home. He asks, "Are masks really effective? And if so, what are the best kinds to wear against COVID-19?" Uh, you know, acknowledging that you should wear it over your mouth and your nose. Um, yeah. So. Um masks are essential at this point uh, you compare us to California um, you know they quickly had another outbreak um, because people were not cooperating whereas here in New York everyone has doing their part they're being socially responsible um, you know we're uh, New York City and, and Long Island that's obviously a lot tighter than certain areas of California but still um, 
you know, uh, like my colleagues were referring to, you know, you have to think the mask is almost like underwear, right? You're covering your privates. When you take it off, you're almost exposed. Um, and it does protect you, yes. Um, you know, someone sneezes or someone does something, then you go right through that cloud of uh, droplets, um, depending on your state uh, of immunity. And even without with good immunity, you can still be infected. So it's really, really important that you um, maintain uh, that protection and you continue all the guidelines because this is why we've done so well. Um, you know, all it takes is just a couple of cases to start spreading. And then next thing you know, uh, everything's getting shut down again and all hard, hard work is pretty much gonna go back to where we were months ago. So, um, you know, I, I think everyone's been socially responsible. They're doing a great job. Um, at least in our area, and uh, we got to continue. We can, I know it's it's fatiguing. Uh, we just want to do things that we we potentially can do. And like I've said in previous webinars, you know, I, this is not forever. Everyone has to keep reminding themselves this is not forever. Um, it's just a matter of time until we can get things, you know, in order. Joy, I'd like to jump in for just a second. In term, I think one of the questions was also what kinds of masks are are the right ones to wear and which ones you might want to avoid and and this is something that um i speak uh with with a lot of people um on a day-to-day -day basis ideally the the mask that you wear will have several layers whether it's the surgical the ear loop mask that people can now get you know at costco and and their local pharmacy um, um, the ones that are unfortunately are, are misunderstood i think the most um, and this speaks to Dr. Hernandez's point. I wear my mask to protect you. You wear your mask to protect me. There's been a lot of use of masks that have these one-way valves. They're, they're usually NIOSH certified. They're meant for industry. And the point of those one-way valves is to protect the wearer themselves. When they take a breath in, that valve closes. And so all the air that they breathe in gets filtered through the material of the mask. But when they exhale, it is the same as having no mask at all. And so you, there's absolutely no mitigation, there's no control of potentially infectious respiratory droplets when that mask wearer exhales. And so I would you know, strongly urge anyone who, who has one of those one-way valve um, masks that they feel they, they must wear, they should actually wear an ear loop or something else over that mask so that the valve itself is covered so that when they exhale, um, they're, they're providing that, that protection to the person that's opposite them. This, the last thing is that there has been um, some information that most recently out of Duke University that did a very nice study that actually looked at those exercise gaiters. And the purpose of those is really to keep the, the air that an athlete might um, inhale warmer so that it, it's easier for them to breathe. But there's some concerns about those those neck gaiters that suggests that the materials that they're made of may actually uh, facilitate large droplets into creating into smaller droplets and so make it actually similar to not having a mask on. So I think that that those those types of things need to be remembered and considered when people are making choices for themselves and their family. Can I just add one thing, Joy? Thank you so sure. much, Dr. Donlin. I you know, was gonna mention all those points. I think the neck ones are really important. Uh, but the one thing I wanted to say that's a really easy hack for people at home to sort of see if their mask is effective or not, you know, besides what uh, Dr. Donlin just mentioned, make sure it's a layered, you know, if you're using a cloth mask, you know, it should be layered to provide more protection is you can very simply hold your hand out in front of your mouth and blow and see if you can feel the air there. Or even easier thing to do if you like is to use a candle and blow through the mask and see if the air is, you know, waving um, that flame. So, you know, if you're if the air is going right through and you're able to feel it on your hand or on the candle, then that mask is really not effective. So you want to think about what you're trying to, you know, hold in, you know, your respiratory droplets. So that's an easy, simple hack that people can do at home. We're going back to vaccines again. Um, so I'm going to start, I tell you what, I'm going to open it up at this particular point. We have Mark, not the same Mark as the last Mark. This is a different Mark. Do you expect more than one vaccine to become available to the public? And if so, should someone get, he says both vaccines, but should you get more than one type of vaccine at the same time? 
Well, Mark, I think that's I think that's a great question, and I think it's something that people will be thinking about. As Dr. Syed had mentioned before, the vaccines that are in production currently um, take multi multi approaches to protection. Some may be against the spike protein, some may be against another protein. Um, it's going to remain to be seen whether there's any synergy of protection um, going forward um, from getting different vaccines, just like having you know, multiple vaccines may wind up being something that um, causes some untoward or unexpected um, events. So I, I'm sure that people are thinking about that, but I think the intent would probably be to get to stick with the type of vaccine that you and your doctor agree is the best for you. And then finishing that series, it may very well be that they'll need two vaccines similar to how children are first starting to get vaccinated. They may need the first vaccine and then a second one may need to follow. And I would suspect that um, when those vaccines come out and if they are done in a serial manner, that they're going to, the intent will be to get vaccinated by the same type of vaccine that you start the series with. But it's an excellent question. Well, we're gonna follow that up with another excellent question on the same topic from Janice. The Janice is asking, how long will the vaccine will be good for? And how will we know how long the vaccine is going to be good for? So I, I can take that. That uh, basically, you know, is going back into uh, one of the earlier questions with these clinical trials um, for the vaccines. Um, we still don't have all the answers and only time will tell. And that's why we need these studies to be done to really tell us, you know, how is the immunity going um, and how long is this immunity going? But even after the trials are completed, a lot of these, you know, these vaccines um, are followed for several years um, after they're developed. So, you know, we're not gonna have all the answers even after they've passed through all of the clinical trials. It's just a matter of time um, and logging all of these, you know, uh, symptoms and seeing, you know, making sure that every patient and every physician is um, reporting if there are any patients that have been vaccinated that are having, you know, uh, an onset of symptoms indicating that, you know, they don't have immunity anymore. So, you know, a lot of these questions are still unanswered and, you know, there is a possibility that you know, you're gonna need a booster for this vaccine. We just don't know yet, you know, but this is, we do know from, you know, usual coronaviruses that, you know, the immunity is not long lived. We don't know for this novel virus still, time will tell. It may very well be that, it may very well be that this will be an annual vaccine, um, just the similar to the influenza vaccine. It's possible. Well, Lucinda has a question on vaccine, but I have to get these grandparents in first. So let, let's go to Laura. She says, I'm a healthy 72-year-old. I am needed to take care of my four-year-old grandson outside and with a mask. Is that okay? Dr. Hernandez? Just Can you repeat the part with the four-year-old and outside? She says, I am needed to take care of my four-year-old grandson outside and with a mask. Is that okay? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what kind of medical condition she has, but, uh, you know, the transmission from children is seen a little bit differently, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. I think if they take proper precautions and making sure they wash their hands, if he sneezes, he changes the mask, you know, those kind of things, then, um, you know, it, it, it would be fine. It's, you know, knowing, I think what, what we have to be more careful with is if we know the persons that were with state of health and that they're healthy and they don't have a fever and they're taking care of themselves, then uh, yes, I mean, uh, you can interact with, with the protocols that are being set. But if you're around strangers, you know, and you don't really know their state action, and as we were mentioning before, the masks and everything else, then that's where you have to be more worrisome. Um, so, um, again, if the, if the grandchild has a fever though, mom shouldn't be bringing her over to grandma. He should stay home until it's determined why he has that fever. And Dr. Ferber, I'm going to give you this one. This is from Laura. Uh, I'm sorry. This is from Karen. Karen, I'm sorry. Is it safe to drive our grandchildren in our car? They see so many families shopping malls, etc. We've only, excuse me. We've only seen them outside, socially distanced. 
we are in our 70s. So there's a lot in the, lot going on in this question. What would you say to Karen? Uh, you know, I would say, again, and this may sound very familiar, you know, taking the correct precautions, number one. So making sure, um, you know, we, we are wearing masks, making sure that, that everybody in our company is wearing masks. You know, the CDC says that children, um, you know, are, don't really, um, this, I mean, they're not e as contagious. They feel, you know, the CDC is, talks about that. However, I mean, either way, I think that um, we just have to be safe. Um, I don't think we can get around not driving our grandchildren around, but just be safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, and um, and again, pay attention to any, you know, if our grandson has symptoms or how they're feeling, and 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 again, we need to pay attention to, of course, our own, you know, well-being. But uh, yeah, it's not an easy question. I think it's. I think it's also important to make sure that the grandchildren are wearing their masks, that the right. source control is, is um, important um, as well. Um, if they're part of your social bubble and you, you, know, you know how how careful they've all been, um, there's people that are more, feel more comfortable taking more liberties, but certainly as they're transitioning back to school, I think it's really important that everyone has source control. And let's go to Lucinda. Um, and she says the common cold is a coronavirus, which we get, which we can get again and again. Could this be the case with coronavirus? And I think there are a lot of us out here are praying to God that you will say no, that it's going to be a one and done. But <laughs> Dr. Syed, what's the answer here? Unfortunately, that's a million dollar question. We don't have the answer to that just yet. Um, again, you know, we don't really know that much about the immunity still. There's been two reported cases, one in the U.S., um, in Nevada, and uh, uh, one uh, globally that have proven, uh, you know, reinfection, um, where they've actually, you know, showed a different strain of, uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2 that has infected the person. Um, in one of the scenarios, the person had, you know, their immune system worked the way that it was supposed to, and the patient didn't have any symptoms a second time around. Uh, in the other case, the second time, the second infection, reinfection with a different strain brought on a more severe type of, you know, response uh, and, and illness. So we don't know, you know, it's, it's still rare. Um, we're at month seven now approximately, and, you know, it's still um, a rare finding. We don't really hear about reinfections that often, but again, we still have a long ways to go to know. So we don't know. The main question is we don't know about immunity. How long will it last? You know, how are people going to deal with re-exposure to this virus? You know, all of these things are still unknown, so only time will tell us. So we've followed the gamut of a lot tonight, and I know there are more questions, and I promise we'll get to them at some point. But for now, I'm going to give this over to uh, Newsday's publisher, Debbie Krennic, after thanking the panel for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Debbie? Thanks, Joy. From listening to you all, I can see there are still challenging times ahead, but I can also see that we're definitely making progress in understanding this virus. Thank you all so much for being here this evening. We look forward to this, to continuing this discussion and hope we can call on all of you again in the future to join us. And I want to thank Joy for leading this important conversation. You can always find the most up-to-date information on the virus and sign up for our newsletter, Coronavirus Tracking Allies Recovery, by going to newsday.com. If you missed any portion of today's event, you can find it by going to newsdaylive.com. You can also find links to all of our past events and find out about upcoming programs we have scheduled as well. From everyone at Newsday, thank you so much for spending some time with us this evening. We'll return after the Labor Day weekend with more Newsday Live events. Until then, please take care of yourself and stay safe.